In early Denver, newspapers were the media. At the end of the day, newspapermen gathered to socialize, play some poker, shoot some pool. They organized their own private club, the Denver Press Club. They had a clubhouse built, which still stands today and still functions as a social club and event center and celebrates the rich history of Denver's news reporters and newsmakers, which now includes electronic journalists and the fields of public relations and advertising. The Denver Press Club is the oldest continually operating press club in the country and sponsors and hosts a variety of entertaining and informative programs and events. This edition of the Denver Press Club is sponsored by the Denver Press Club and the Colorado Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. Hello and welcome to another book beat from the Denver Press Club. Uh, my name is Bruce Goldberg, board president of the Denver Press Club. Our guest today, former state representative Alice Barotkin, who has a very interesting book out, her memoir, Caught Between the Bettys. And welcome, Alice. Thank you. And the idea of this, she's caught between Betty Crocker, living life as a woman growing up in the Betty Crocker mold, being pleasing to her man and having dinner ready and getting up, make break of skids, et cetera, et cetera. And Betty Friedan, the, the very voice of women's liberation. These two forces collided in her life throughout. Okay. And this book came out fairly recently. When yes, it was published last November. What kind of reaction have you gotten to the book? Well, it's been interesting for, from women of a certain age <clears throat> who understand some of this and what I've written about. Um, and so when I read this, read certain chapters, I'll see a lot of this. And then there are the younger women, most of which have not ever heard of Betty Friedan which I think is amazing since yep. she was the, really one of the mothers of, of feminism. So uh, that, that is interesting. But even then, they're still, they're still uh, happy to read the book. And they can't believe some of the things that are in it that we all went through in the 40s and 50s and 60s. So it was a And then what I didn't realize really till today as I finished this was that this was a series of essays. It was a series of essays, right. yes, and it was all written in a workshop uh, that um, uh, called Kitchen Table Writing. And it was all written there as separate essays as this, uh, our, our leader who is a published author and a screenwriter would throw out prompts and the next thing I knew I was writing all this stuff. And I had no idea I even knew it or remembered it. So the, the trick was then to make those essays come into a book, and that's where the editor came in, and she really did a great job. And in this kitchen writing group we've, we have talked about, you get a lot of support there. Oh, yeah, it, it was interesting because I have a tendency to profile, as my husband will tell you. Um, and uh, when I walked in and I looked at the group and I thought, mm, I don't know, this may not be the place for me. What happened was that we've all bonded and we are all different. And so when we read at the end of the, the, uh, the session, um, we never know if we're gonna be passing the Kleenex because we're laughing or we're passing the Kleenex because we're crying. And only, there were certain parts of the book that I simply could not write by myself. 
but had no problem. As soon as I got into the group, I was able to write them. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's where um, you will find me starting tomorrow morning while I work on the next book. <laughs> You're, you were in the perfect atmosphere with that It was. It folks. was yeah. just, there's, they weren't judgmental. And you leave your critic at the door. Um, and people, it, what the, my messages were seemed to resonate with those women around the table and have now resonated with everybody who reads the book. Okay. Well, let me start. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of your career and the things you've done <laughs> and, uh, and, and the overall issue, too, about which Betty am, am I going to be like today or, or the struggle you know, to try to have it all. But you learned the basics of hard work and of being responsible on the job at a very young age from your father. Oh, yes. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> Dad, was, um, Dad was born in Beirut, and uh, a lot of the, uh, the, a lot of the, the um, Jewish people in Lebanon and in Damascus had to leave because they were not allowed to own anything any property, any businesses, nothing. And so they came here, my grandparents came here first in 1920, uh, followed by the rest of the family. My dad was here when he was about six or seven. He was very young. But he grew up in business, and he spent his life always in business. And that reflected back on me. As early as eight years old, I used to go to work with him every single Saturday. And that time, we lived in Chicago. And uh, that was the time where I learned how to sell hosiery and how to balance the, the uh, cash register. And I think the most exciting thing, and I didn't realize it then, was that I saw the real Rosie the Riveters during World War II. And they used to come in right off the line, really. They were greasy and they were dirty. Nothing like the picture that you see today where they, the eye, her eyelashes are beautiful and her makeup is perfect. These women were tired and they were dirty and they wanted to use their money. And when they would open their bags and you could see the cash rolling out, they would buy these fabulous um, stockings, which had seams up the back in those days and came two in a pair, no pantyhose. And they would buy lingerie and all kinds of things that were, um, made them feel more like a woman, I guess. But they would buy it. And suddenly you would just imagine that the dirt and the grime and the tiredness would go away. And that was a real eye-opener for you to see these women who had just Absolutely. come from the factory. Absolutely. They worked hard. They drove trucks, and they, drove, they worked in factories, and they just did everything uh, because all the men were being sucked up by the Army and the Navy and everything else. So these women had to do everything. And I find it interesting thinking about how after the war, they went back to their homes in Levittown and different places and um, had to become the homemaker while daddy went out and earned a living. So I wondered how that... How did they reconcile that? Yeah. Being independent, making their own money yeah. for all those years, right. and then had to go back into That's the right. subordinate role. And they did. Yeah. 
sort of. <laughs> now, and you worked at the store for many years, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I worked at my dad's stores all the time. And then um, he opened a store in Harlem uh, for, after we left Chicago and came back to New York. And uh, he opened a store in Harlem and he put the name up on the door and somebody came in um, and said, are you related to the Ronnie brothers that were here in the 1920s? Because my grandparents, uh, my grandfather and his brother opened a store in Harlem as well. And so they knew the name. And uh, yeah, that was quite an experience. And um, I had to take the subway to work and uh, open up the store and balance the cash drawer and make sure that the merchandise was good. Um, everything was fine, and I was not allowed to have a date until after 6.30 when I closed up. <laughs> so, so much for Saturday night, but that's what it was. But still, it's a remarkable amount of responsibility that he yes. put on your shoulders at he did. a younger age. You he know. did, but I'm very grateful. I had no idea of the influence this man had on my life and how much he taught me about responsibility. Mm -hmm. And then, um, do you want to read one of the passages now? Oh, <laughs> yeah. well, I'm going to read a little bit about um, the back of the book here because the back of the book seems to have all of the, my, my pictures. Um, but it was interesting that um, the gentleman who designed the book immediately got the idea about the pearls and said, some rebels wear pearls. So if you think that the 1940s and 50s were a simpler time, you're right. Men and women had their roles to play. The men were the breadwinners and were supposed to be tough, and the little lady was the homemaker. A script, a script written before time by countless men and women. A simpler time, yes but not so easy. For women and girls who followed the script, it should have been easier. Get married, because that's why you went to college, was to find a man. Have a few kids, be happy with your split-level suburban home, and have that martini ready for Mr. Wonderful when he comes through the door after a hard day of work. No one asked, what does the woman want? But for some women, it was not enough. Along came Betty Friedan and the feminine mystique and the problem without a name. Fighting the stereotype was difficult. The bosses who told you to keep quiet before a meeting. The constant struggle for validation from those who thought you should be happy with what you had and couldn't see who you really were. Marching down Fifth Avenue with names like Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug, for a woman's equality brought out the rebel and it turned me into a woman. This is one woman's story, it's mine, my journey, how I became caught between the Bettys, from following the script to becoming a pilot, to running for office, and all the potholes along the way. So that really is the gist of the book. Um, I think, and that's, that's uh, a lot of things in here that a lot of younger women today have no clue <laughs> what we yeah. went through. Yeah. <laughs> no and, clue. Well, I want to grab one of those incidents. 
you have it in the book, the bosses of Zodiac Key Quiet before a meeting. Oh, God, yeah. You tell that story. Well, <laughs> I was director of marketing for the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, and my special project, and I had a multi-million dollar budget for it, was the train to the plane, which was a, a special subway train that had cops on it and only a few cars and made several stops and then went out to the airport where um, one of the MTA's buses would pick them up and drive them around. So, um, drive them around to their terminals. Well, after working with the ad agency and working with the budget and keeping things going, um, we had an award-winning program. And we won first prize at the uh, Transit Association's Advertising Agency. And as we were going in to a meeting with the representatives from two different, from New York and New Jersey, from the governor's office, my boss turned to me and he said, and you keep your mouth shut. And I did. Today, if he said that, he probably wouldn't be able to walk, Bruce. Sorry, <laughs> but that's, I did. And at the awards dinner, walked off with my award. And we have the picture of him and my award in the book, because I figured nobody would believe that. But that's the way it was. And it was hard to, to gain a foothold because I didn't know, I, I didn't have the confidence yet that I could do things without, um, without him butting in. Um, and I tur it turned out that I became the, 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 <laughs> the uh, head of marketing for MTA because he was having an affair with one of our directors. And she left, he got promoted, and so did I. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. You uh, wind up marrying the boy next door. Yes, I did. Literally. Mm -hmm. And then you taught him a lesson very early in the marriage. <laughs> you mean the prologue. <laughs> the, the uh, you know, the car. Yeah, Picking yeah. That was, that, was, uh, that was an interesting thing. And I, I'll read you the prologue. <laughs> okay. It's 6.30 on a wet, rainy night in June of 1951. A real East Coast storm with howling wind ripping through the trees. Sheets of rain blowing sideways, thunder and lightning. Allie, husband of two weeks, says on the phone, calling from what sounds like a wind-tossed phone booth, can you pick me up at the subway? I'm drenched. Sure, the good wife says, I'm on the way. Ten minutes later, I pull up at the subway station, and Mr. Wonderful jumps around the car to the driver's side and says, move over, honey, I'll drive. Honey looks at him like he's nuts. Move over? Get in, I say. No, he says as the rain drips off his nose, move over, honey, and I'll drive home. Honey is getting hot under the collar. I've been driving since I was 13. I have a license just like you do. Get in before you drown. I yell over the wind and the rain. Once more, please move over, Alice. Now, he's hot under the collar. Get in or I'm leaving, says the good wife, honey, Alice. 
No? Goodbye, and off honey drives to my little nest, my big glass of wine, and the stone in my stomach thinking about what I had just done. <laughs> A bit later, husband is home as he gets out of his mother's car. Just like a man, his mommy saved him from drowning. New husband probably recalculated his idea of the good wife. <laughs> and we were married 47 years. Yes. <laughs> That's such a great story. <laughs> yeah, that, that, but that was, that was the time then. That was the time then. Women were not supposed to be driving or doing some of the things that I... I felt I needed to do that constant um, tornado in my soul that kept saying, "You're, you know, you can do more, you can be more." Um, and so, when he came home and said, "Next week we are taking our first flying lesson," I almost fell over because I thought, you know, he was going to say, "You go, honey, and get your hair done, and, and I'm going to learn how to fly." Well, getting that pilot's license changed my life. And um, that's going to be my next question. You know, you, uh, what year did you get your pilot's license? Oh, my God, it was 1970. And uh, yeah. <laughs> there were very few women out at the airport at, at the time. And um, my instructor came out one day and took a piece of gum out of his mouth and put it on the wing. This was the first time he, when I was getting into the plane. And he... Uh, he said, there, that should hold it. And immediately I reminded him that if I go down, he's going with me. So I didn't run. But then he, he let loose with why he, he couldn't imagine why a woman wanted to learn how to fly. I don't know if I say this on TV, but... <laughs> yeah, that, that's it's pretty backwards. He said, you were, you're either a lesbian or you just want to get laid. Neither which was true. And that was the beginning uh, of uh, a nice, strong friendship that we did end up having as a pilot and an instructor. He realized he couldn't uh, bowl you over and I sort of... No, really. I, uh, I knew that Howard was learning to fly, and I wanted to learn how to fly, and it became extremely competitive um, because he soloed on a Saturday, and I decided I needed to solo the Saturday after, and so did not go to work for a week. And as the saying goes, I flew the hangar doors off uh, trying to solo, and I did. And, and once did. you had your license, uh, you would rent a plane and yeah. go places, yeah. generally in the, I don't know, tri-state area, or maybe well, a little bit more. We, yeah, we went, we went uh, to different places. We flew up to Block Island and to different places, and we flew air races as well. Um, but then we had to fly in separate planes. <laughs> <laughs> Sort of like driving. <laughs> Your husband teaches you to drive. Yeah. <laughs> now, wasn't there a little issue with you trying to find Boston on one flight? Oh, my God. You did read the book. I did. Uh, that was called a cross-country. And a cross-country trip was considered 100 miles. I thought when they said cross-country, it meant I was going to California. And I'm wondering who's going to stay with the kids. That's how naive I was, but it meant 100 miles. So 100 miles from Long Island was um, the airport, uh, I think it's Green Airport in um, Rhode Island. And so off I went, and everything I knew I used. 
We looked at the maps, we checked the fuel, we did it at the time, everything. And then I come upon what I found out later was the airport. The runways were laid out the way they should have been. The time was right, the fuel was right, the wind was right, everything was right. And I said, oh no, that can't be it because I didn't have the confidence in me that I could do that. So I kept flying, and the next thing I knew, I was in Boston's airspace, which is restricted. And so I called uh, uh, flight control, um, and uh, they gave me a heading back, and back to the airport. And as I was getting ready to land, there was an Eastern Airlines plane in front of me, and they, uh, he's, I was told by the controller, you follow that Eastern Airlines plane in. And then I hear this fabulous voice, and he, this pilot gets on, he said, oh no, he said, we defer to the little lady, we've been following the conversation. And so I landed first, and then Eastern Airlines came in. Um, and when he went up to the tower, the captain came up to the tower because I had to go up there to get my, my logbook signed. And, uh, and the captain said, you know what? He says, you got moxie. <laughs> but, you know, and then when I, I flew back to, to our uh, airport in Long Island, and uh, apparently the story had reached everybody beforehand, and so they, everybody was waiting out on the runway, and <laughs> we're happy to see me. <laughs> Um, are you still flying, or when did you stop? No, I'm, I'm not flying um, at the moment. I haven't flown in about 20 years, uh. or 16 anyway, that I know of. And, um, uh, but all, when I was in the legislature, all the aviation bills used to come to me because I understood airports, I knew what had to get done, and uh, even I think I got an award from um, one of the chambers okay. for a bill that we had pushed through. The, this also kind of motivated you. You started your own newspaper, the Airport Press. Well, they weren't waiting for Miss New York when I got here, so I had to do something. And um, I started a newspaper called Women's Business Chronicle. And that was a strictly business newspaper. It had no lifestyles in it, no horoscopes, no fashions. It was, and many of the women that I had come to know began to write articles for me. Uh, and editors came, and people who wanted to freelance came, and um, they worked for next to nothing, really, but or almost nothing, and sometimes nothing. But um, it was quite a success. And when I look at the paper now that we have, I'm wondering, you know, it was great. It was a good, good paper. And I remember it had a that, lot of good content. One, yes. Yeah. What I was referring to earlier, though, was you started Airport Press. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. another one. And I knew nothing about, I knew nothing about newspapers or what to do. Or <laughs> I just knew they needed an airport newspaper for Kennedy and LaGuardia. Kennedy, I think, at the time had about seventy thousand people that worked there, and uh, so we drummed it up and we got it together and nobody got paid again, but they got free advertising. So we, we got that paper off the ground. And then to make it more substantial, I started the JFK Chamber of Commerce. But I, knew, I didn't even know what a Chamber of Commerce did. And uh, I found out in short order. 
and got that going. And I thought I would be the first president, but I wasn't because I didn't learn how to advocate for myself. And so the president, the manager of the Hilton Hotel got it. <laughs> and then you and, came up with a great end, end around play in which you formed the JFK <laughs> Airport Women's Chamber of Commerce. Well, yeah, I was getting a little uh, uncomfortable of always having us, um, always having to fight with the guys on the board about different things. And so I started the Women's Chamber uh, and we were able to get a daycare center put in uh, by the Port Authority, who ran the airports, uh, for the workers there. And it just took off from there. The, the chamber now, the JFK Chamber of Commerce, the Women's Chamber I don't think is still going, but the JFK Chamber is now about 45 years old. So, wow. Yeah. And when you started up each of these chambers, how did you get members? Did you just knock on doors? Uh... <laughs> No, I, I don't know. I have a knack for right, finding the right people in the right place. And so some of the people I was working with, and by then I knew everybody at the airports. And so they all just flocked and the hotels came on board and uh, the businesses came on board. Uh, and of course, then the gossip started with, uh, I wonder who she's sleeping with and that's why she got the chamber. <laughs> Did you happen to be, you know, where was the Lufthansa house? Was that a Kennedy oh, or LaGuardia? I was there. <laughs> yeah? I was there. Was that a Kennedy or LaGuardia? It was a Kennedy, and I had just interviewed the, uh, <laughs> the station manager for Lufthansa the day before that heist, and he, was, he showed me the, the whole uh, storeroom and how, how the security worked, and everything was lined up perfectly to the edges, and it was very, very, you know, militarized and then they knocked them off so <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was if anyone doesn't know what that is that was a huge <laughs> theft from Lufthansa Airlines by organized crime right um, it's one of the centerpieces of uh, Goodfellas the movie Goodfellas yes yes <laughs> Yeah, we have a few of those around <laughs> and so you would have a whole bunch of business experience uh, marketing, advertising, and these ventures that we've talked about in publishing. Right. Um, and then, you know, I want to get to the legislative years, because that's very interesting. First, how were you accepted as then a 66-year-old woman with, shall we say, a noticeable uh, New York presence? <laughs> yes. In, in um, the Colorado legislature. Where they... Well, it's really uh, very interesting. Uh, the person, the woman who had the seat before me is, was Dorothy Gottlieb. Okay. And Dorothy Gottlieb was a Republican, and I am a Democrat. So one day, I think um, my soon-to-be husband and I were sitting in, in our synagogue one Friday night, and she came running down the aisle, and she said, I'm challenging so-and-so for the Senate. It's your turn. Go for the seat. So I did. And so at 66, I remarried after Howard had passed away and uh, started a whole new life uh, by ending up in the legislature. But how did you build this campaign, your first campaign ever, your first run for office? Yeah. What yeah. were some of the elements involved in building up this campaign and convincing well, people you want to vote for me? Well, I think 
marketing and salesmanship is my strong point because of my father's training. And so I, I pretty much knew what we had to do. I could not get it done if it wasn't for the support I had from my family. Um, my husband, Arnold, had um, done all the computer work and I did some of the brochure writing and layout and took it to the, you know, to the printer. Um, and we just knocked on doors and I, I scoped out who I needed to know and where I needed to go and I did so. And I won. I won four times. <laughs> Actually. Which district was it? House, it, was, it started out as House District 10, then they went through redistricting, so it became House District 9, because they had to give up one district. Um, and it's still House District 9. And what area does that cover? Oh, gosh. That covers uh, a lot of southeast Denver around Monaco and uh, down towards, I think it's the north side of um, Bellevue. Okay. That whole southeast area. So in this first campaign, I mean, how many appearances did you make? How many? I don't know. <laughs> were, were there debates? Yeah, we had a number of debates. And the gentleman who was running against me um, was, as we found out, one step ahead of the law all the time. So, and his name shall go. I forgot his name. But it's OK. And, uh, and one debate. Um, he started spouting about um, the Constitution. And uh, I had been in the legislature two years already, and they always give out these little books about the Constitution. And I happened to have it that night in the bag, in my handbag. And he said, well, when was the last time you looked at the Constitution? And I pulled it out, and I said, <laughs> well, funny you should ask, because I just did today. So <laughs> I won That's that great. one, too. Yes. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. The, the, so how were you accepted? That's what we started the discussion with. <clears throat> well, they don't, I think they don't see your kind a lot, or at least back then, coming it, to the state legislature. It was, um, Governor Owens was in, we were in the minority at the time. The, the Democrats were in the minority. And uh, I, yeah, I was 66 years old. Everybody else was 12. And um, it was very, it was difficult in that I noticed that groups of men would gather and talk, but the women just didn't do that. And one day I marched into the speaker's office, and at the time we were in the minority, so it was, he was a Republican, and I said, look, I may not be the future of the party, but I am the future of the party just based on my knowledge and experience. So don't leave me out of all of these different committees and things that are going on. And he agreed um, not to, and he didn't. Yeah. But you do have to be a little bitchy um, and make sure that people understand that you are there. You got there just like everybody else did. You won your election. Yeah. And I just, that's, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Just fight. What, was, what, what was the first year you were in office? Um, 2001. 2001? Yeah. Okay. And I was there until 2009, right. and then I got term limited. Right. Okay. The um, subsequent elections, did you face serious challenges? 
Well, t two of them were from the same guy. And the third one, I, did I have a challenger? I don't remember if I had a challenger for the third one. I did, yes, I did, but he really wasn't a challenger. And uh, I think everybody knew me by that time. And uh, even the Republicans in our district, I was my constituency. They were moderate, they were educated, and I was my constituency, so I had no problem. And the third time I ran, or the fourth time I ran, um, I had nothing, nobody. No. So that was it. You know, among the things on your agenda, there were human rights, battling human trafficking, animal cruelty, um, getting tourism and arts as part of economic development. Like, like, tell me a few of the things you're proudest of that you accomplished. In well, I think I, I brought the very first bill ever focused totally on human trafficking uh, for this state. Uh, they had other child laws and abuse laws, but they didn't have anything on human trafficking. Um, I was very fortunate to get um, a scholarship to the Center for Women Policy Studies in Washington. Uh, where uh, they held what they call a foreign policy institute, and that's where I really learned about trafficking. I always knew about it, but I didn't know about it. So I'm uh, two of the women that I, I uh, had that I met while I was there were state reps and a state senator from Washington State and from Florida, and they already had a bill which I had gone to talk to our bill drafters about, and we adapted that bill, which created the Interagency Task Force on Human Trafficking. And uh, I had no staff. They told me to go play. And I had no staff, I had no committee, I had nothing. But at the same time, the Division of Criminal Justice was going for a grant of $450,000 from the feds, and because we had passed the bill on the, on the uh, law enforcement task force, they got the money and they staffed my committee. And we did present reports to both judiciary committees. Um, and now, of course, everybody keeps putting more and more bills in. But to tell you the truth, I don't care how many bills are on the books. If they're not implemented, they mean nothing. And so I think the fight today is that we are still educating the public day after day that this is not only in our state, but it's in our neighborhoods. And this has become such a hot topic worldwide the past few years. Yeah, absolutely, and absolutely. You've been one of the pioneers in fighting it. Apparently. And it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I thank uh, the Center for Women Policy Studies for that. And then we spent, um, we got another scholarship on women, peace, and security, and I spent uh, four days at the UN. And growing up in New York, I'd been to the UN, but not this way. And I realized that uh, all these, these women that were part of the NGOs that were working on these things weren't even in the same building. They were down the street or around the corner or in a hotel, they were not part of the UN. Mm. And um, my aunt used to have an office a couple blocks from the UN. I'm sorry? My aunt used to have an office a couple you blocks did? from the UN. My aunt did. Oh, you're So you I, I can see it, you know, look, stepping out of her office door and see her 
Yeah, it's very building. impressive. Yeah. It's highly, 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 highly political. Oh, I'm sure. It's really political to the point where I think they're stopped uh, from doing the things that they claim they are doing. But we don't want to get into that tonight, do we? Yeah. No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I want to talk some more about the legislative agenda and mm -hmm. the things that you pursued. Mm -hmm. uh, what would be your second favorite thing beyond the human trafficking? After the human trafficking, I began to work on bills with domestic violence. I began to work on uh, one bill that Governor Rear signed that I don't think is being implemented. It was a bill that taught um, women how to contract with government agencies. Um, and he signed it and everybody was happy about it, but I don't know. I don't know if it's being implemented or not. Um, also, another bill was to train a task force of state patrol to understand the difference between smuggling or illegal immigration and human trafficking. And uh, they had a big budget. And uh, when I called up to find out what was going on, I was told it was put into another bill. I don't know how they do that. I never heard of that, but that's fine. So. The um, human and the animal cruelty was one of your animal cruelty was I don't know if you all remember when um, they threw that cat out the window of a of a car that was driving I forgot the name of the cat now that's what we named the law too um, he was set on fire and thrown out of a car and uh, that really made me crazy. And when we went to talk about animal cruelty, I found that the juxtaposition between animal cruelty and child abuse and human, human abuse in general was extremely close. It was all tied in. And so I thought, well, we need to make this a felony. Well, I was in the minority, so of course my bill went into committee and it died. And then they gave it to a Republican. And I went down and I testified on the House floor for the bill. I, my interest was get the bill passed. I don't care whose name is on it. But I think that those who, who needed to know knew that it was mine. Yeah. And, and speaking of Republicans, you mentioned here the importance of learning how to cross the aisle, learning how to collaborate Absolutely. with the other party if you Absolutely. want to get anything done. Can you tell us a little bit about that, sir? Well, I don't know if it's, <laughs> if it's happening right now, but it was then. And uh, there were some very, very ultra-conservative women that I managed to deal with because women are very collaborative. It's not that men are better or men are worse or women, but I think what it is is we just work differently. So collaboration is extremely important. And a subject like human trafficking or anything like that um, appeal to the very conservative people. And uh, I worked with a lot of the women. And there were a few moderate Republicans that I worked with, too. And you just have to you know, cross the aisle. Um, one or two of them, uh, very right, very conservative, ultra-conservative. <laughs> um, came to me, uh, I was on the finance committee, and he came to me and he said, I would like to add this amendment to your bill. 
And my bill drafter was sitting there, and we looked at it, and I said, that's a great idea, and we added it. And since then, according to him, I walk on water. I didn't care that he was a conservative Republican. I really didn't care. It made my bill better, so we did it. And those days seem to be long ago <laughs> and so far away now. Well, both at the national and state level. People that's are, a different. People are too, too married to ideology and not to getting things done. It's different. Yeah. But I think, I think we need a lot more women in the legislature and in Congress. And uh, there are times when I feel like I live in the third world. And I met, I met some of these women through World Denver. And that's my next book, which is going to be called The World of Women. And it's about all these women I have met who come with their global issues. But the one from Nepal kept saying, you only have 44 women in Congress? You don't have family leave? You don't have equal pay? And so I felt like I lived in the third world. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the next book. Tell us some more. Are these going to be profiles of these accomplished women well, from I've around sent, the world? I've, or? I've managed to um, keep in touch with a number of these women um, that I have met. And so I just sent out emails to them asking them, A, what they're doing on International Women's Day, so we can talk about that. And also their stories and what they're finding. And what I'm finding is that we all have the same issues. And we're all sisters under the skin. And uh, we will tell those stories and their fights and their battles. And tell us, in fact, tell us more about your work on women's rights, women's equality. <laughs> Well, I got a phone call. I got an email one day asking if I was going to Washington to march for the uh, Equal Rights Amendment. And I said, I don't think so. I did that 40 years ago, and nothing has happened. And it was 40 years ago. Because we marched down Fifth Avenue with Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug in her hat and uh, Betty Friedan. And uh, it was interesting. It wasn't exactly the way I would approach a fight. <laughs> but um, after a while, I went my own separate way. But yeah. But you've, you've initiated a couple of women's groups, women's networking kind yeah. of things. Yeah. And that's what I'm curious about what those were. Well, one of them was um, called Women Engaging Globally. And we had 150 members in there. We still do have 150 members. And a lot of them are doing hands-on work, which I cannot do. Such as what? They go to Nepal and they work. Uh, a couple of them are uh, nurses and go there. And uh, of course, my first question always is, why don't you come to Africa? And I say, OK, when you tell me about the bathrooms, I will come to Africa. And uh, so far, I haven't heard back, so yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but that's what they do. And human trafficking, some of them work the hotline on the human trafficking issues. Some of them go to Africa frequently. Africaid, uh, which I support, and uh, I have a young woman whose name is Happiness. And she is graduating high school at 21. But she is graduating. And um, so we work on a number of those issues. Are these women, do they live around the world or are they in the U.S. and they travel to help other people? Yeah, 
the, a lot of them are here in the Posner Center. Okay. Uh, Africade's there, a number of organizations are there, and uh, some of the women don't belong to any particular organization, and they go. They go on missions, or they go uh, with their church, or their synagogue, whatever. And uh, uh, I admire them because I cannot do that work. I know my limitations, and if I see a kid in pain, I'm in trouble. And I'll just want to make chicken soup for the world and, and uh, take them all home. So I do the abstract, I'll raise the money, I'll write about them, yeah. but I can't do the work. Yeah. I just can't. You know, we we'll we'll just want to take a step back. You mentioned someone that would man the hotline for yeah. trafficking. What kind of calls would they get? Well, apparently they get a lot of calls, and some... I got a call once from a woman who said she was sure that all the people in her building were being trafficked because she saw all these apartments, these people coming and going and coming and going, and, and, and we found out later that it was Jewish Family Services who had set up these apartments for Russian immigrants. And so the Russian immigrants were coming and going, coming and going. It wasn't trafficking. Uh, yes. But yeah. the hotline, they, they report um, anonymously what they see and where <clears throat> they see it. And uh, Would some of the victims of trafficking manage to get to a phone and call in? No. The, trafficking is commercial as well as sex. So you don't know if the workers in your favorite restaurant asked to be there, or did not ask to be there. Um, a lot of them come here under uh, duress and, and uh, coercion because they're told that they will have marriages and they'll have jobs and they'll have family. Then when they get here, they are beaten, they are raped, they are drugged. And then they, if they want to leave, you will hear people say to them, we know where your family is, and we'll, we'll kill them all. Who is doing the trafficking? Well, I think that it's um, a lot of uh, um, organized crime behind it. It's the third largest money maker after guns and drugs for them. And it's a very organized uh, type of of thing. Uh, what pains me the most is that when we do are able to rescue some of these women, we don't have any place to put them. We need homes and we need mental health and physical health and things like that, education, and we don't have that as yet. Many countries I have found from overseas are way ahead of us. They have establishments. They have places where these rescued people will go. Mm -hmm. It's a, such a heartless crime. What, well, what happens? I think that education is the key. And I think that it, people need to know that it's not only crossed the border of Colorado, but it's crossed the border. You know, they laughed at me when I came up with that um, task force. And then the very next day in the newspapers, they closed six spas around the city. Yes. Yeah. And three of them were in my district. <laughs> so, 
right on Hamden, right next to the New York Deli. <laughs> oh. I almost went in there. <laughs> Literally next to it? Literally. Oh my. I was so thrilled and I hear I had just come back from Washington and, and being a New Yorker I thought I knew everything. And uh, this gal, this, the, you know, uh, I said, oh, isn't that wonderful? We have a spa, I can get my nails done, I can have a massage. And the very next day I find that that one yeah. was one of them. But when I told the reporter that, he said, why? That makes you sound stupid. I said, no, it doesn't. It makes, it, what I, but that proves my point. I didn't believe it was here. And in my district? Yeah. yeah. So in wrapping up, I want to ask you, step back and take an overview. Do you feel you've succeeded in reconciling these two battling forces in your life? The oh, Betty yes. Crocker side, the Betty Friedan yes. side. And, and how do you feel you... Well, I feel that you don't have to make that choice. I love my house. I love to cook. I love my plants. I love my husband. I love my daughter. I love everybody. And I love to cook for them. Um, but it doesn't stop me from being the person that I am. And it took me a long time to battle and to to prove to mostly family that this is who I am. I'm not just Stephen's mother or Julie's mother. I have more. And that's how you reconcile it, I think. But I think it's very difficult for women to think they can have it all because it's a little tough. <laughs> yeah. Alice Brodkin, thanks again well, for thank coming you. today to Denver Press Club. The book is Caught Between the Bettys, a memoir by Alice Brodkin, former state rep and many other things. Um, <laughs> want to remind you that this program is sponsored by the Denver Press Club and the Colorado chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. You can check out other events at the Press Club at denverpressclub.org. Um, I'm Bruce Goldberg, board president of the Denver Press Club. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>